I just want to share this one great story in my personal life. Um, there was a, a woman in the small little church I grew up in, and she took it upon herself to be the, like the volunteer youth worker for our little church. We had, uh, you know, expenditures, and I guess we couldn't afford a youth pastor or something. And so Anne became the volunteer youth director, youth pastor of our church. Now, ironically, unlike our church, that particular church, women were not allowed to be in spiritual authority over men. But since no men were willing to lead the youth department, I guess they had said, well, they're not men yet. They're just teenage boys, I guess. I don't know how they got around it. But Anne left such an indelible spiritual impression on me. Uh, she would lead all the Bible studies. She would host events at her house. And then even after we had graduated, a group of us had graduated from high school, when you're finally like free of these annoying teenagers, we started hanging out at her, at her house as adults. And so first two years out of high school, I attended a local college in my community. And during those years, I would just sort of show up unannounced. And Ann's like, oh, yeah, come on in. And, and her folks lived with her. And, uh, and so I just sort of grew up not only in my house, but I grew up in Ann's house. And at some point when I felt a call to ministry, Ann's like, yeah, I, I see that and you need to go to Moody Bible Institute, and she drove me there. So uh, I ended up at the college I ended up at, and really have, a, even to this day, have some of the spiritual convictions I have, in large part to a woman who wasn't my mother, but invested so deeply in me. So that's true of all the men and the women in this room, that we can have a profound impact on people that we are not biologically connected to, or fostering, or adopted, we can have this profound impact. And that's still true to this day. And so I know Stuart does this because he works with our student ministry. God bless him. He's a saint. I have a 17-year-old boy. I don't work in our student ministry. And uh, I just send Jack off with his buff uh, tee, his buffalo t-shirt, and uh, say, how'd it go? And he's like, good. And, uh, but I know someone spiritually investing in him besides me and besides my wife. And so that's good. So. Anyhow, that actually has great bearing on what we're talking about today, because we're going to talk about the last letter, the last chapter of the last letter written by the Apostle Paul. This is 2 Timothy, fourth chapter. So we're in the final concluding sentences that we receive from the Apostle Paul. And so if you think about it, this is kind of his last will and testament. These are his parting Words And he seems to know by the articulation of the writing, he seems to know this is the last writing he's going to utter to Timothy. And Timothy's been a protege of his, an adopted spiritual son. In fact, he tells Timothy, I'm your spiritual dad. You, have, there, you can have a biological father, but I'm your spiritual father. And so Paul plays this role in Timothy's life. Timothy is with him. If you read other epistles, not just the ones named after Timothy, if you read, you'll see Timothy's name show up. It's a church that Timothy was leading at that time in a town known as Ephesus that at that time was pretty close to the shore of the Aegean Sea where a river kind of uh, uh, entered into the sea. Now Ephesus is deeper inland because of sedimentary deposits and so forth. But at the time, Ephesus was a port city, an important city, a prominent city in the Roman Empire. It was a city that was also a tourist city because people went there to, to, to um, have a tourist experience at the Temple of Artemis who was a, a goddess in the Greco-Roman world. And so people 
who had dedicated themselves or had a particular interest in Artemis would go there. And so Timothy is leading a church in that community. Paul wrote 1 Timothy to him earlier and then 2 Timothy. And so Paul, as he's uh, coming towards the end of uh, his, uh, his utterances to his protege, his uh, young Padawan in uh, Star Wars terms, he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. So let me just pause there for a minute. I mean, we just don't talk like that anymore, do we? I mean, like, I mean, I, I love working here and I love working for Marty, but Marty is apt to say, Bill, um, would you preach uh, a, a Sunday in June? Um, but he doesn't say, by the mercies of our Lord and Savior. <laughs> as it's incumbent upon us as we are recipients of the grace of our Lord and Savior, who came on the, on the will of his father, and in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, would you preach? Now, he believes that. And I think that, honestly, I think he, he if you were to peel back the layers of, hey, why would you have somebody teach? I, I'm sure that that is actually what he would say is, well, they, they hold fast to the faith and they can articulate the faith and they represent God. Well, I mean, that we, we just don't talk like that. And we don't write letters like that. And we certainly don't text like that. Maybe we should. Maybe texting would, think about, maybe our texting would go up a notch. Um, it, it, it would, the first time you do that as a text, it might seem weird and your friend might like have some questions, but after a year, you'll have a new pattern. So maybe we should, but what Paul's saying to Timothy is, I'm not asking you to do it because I'm the boss. I'm not asking you to do it because I have bishop authority as the founder of the church, that you are who you are because... I have invested in you. All those things would be true, but that's not where he starts. He starts out and he, he, rec he reminds Timothy, you have a job to do that is a job that has been given to you and appointed to you by our Lord Jesus Christ, that it's by his will, that it's by his grace that you are called to this work. And this is a great reminder for us too. You know, there are times where when we think about the work that we have to do as followers of Christ, wherever we're at, in whatever kind of uh, arena which we live out our lives, it could be in a work career place, it could be in a homeowners association, God help you. <laughs> if you're ever, <laughs> I go to Facebook very fearfully because I know I'm going to have some posts from the HOA and it's always about someone's barking dog. Go talk to your neighbor. Um, but, but whatever arena in which you live your life, you live out that life because God has planted you there and placed you there. And so this is a great reminder that as followers of Christ, we do what we do, we say what we say, we make the choices we make, but we need to do so remembering that we're just, we're, we're not our own. The old catechism, one of the old catechisms says that I'm not my own, but I am bought body and soul by Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful way of kind of thinking of it? How often do you think of it that way though? 
If you're like me, you're thinking of other things, right? Like, I didn't buy enough mulch at Home Depot. I got to go back. I'm, I'm thinking, I get, I, all these lofty thoughts get brought down to, I bought the wrong thing. Or I need to go to the store, and the store happens to be on Pennsylvania Avenue, and Satan is the engineer of the Memorial Pennsylvania. I don't know what human he used, and if it's you, I'm sorry. But the devil himself spoke that thing into existence. It's terrible. And I'm thinking, I don't want to go there. That's where my thoughts go. My thoughts aren't lofty and lifted up. They just aren't. Not as often as they should be. And so that's, a, you know, that's just a, its own like question. It's a personal reflection question. How do, we, how do we keep the Lord first and foremost in our mind? How do we continue to think about him even when we run out of bags of mulch and have to go back over to Home Depot? Because that's really, that's an important facet to our faith, to our living life, to the way God had intended for us to live. So this is where Paul starts. He's winding down his letter. He starts with these incredible words, and then he goes on. And he says, in, uh, in view of us and the presence of God, and, and by the way, Jesus is coming back again, he says, uh, I give you this charge, preach the word. And so he utters uh, five imperatives right in a row. He says, he says uh, I want you to preach the word uh, and uh, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction, which is a big mouthful. There's, there's a handful of things in there. So what he says, there's like, they're all in the, in the past tense, I, the aorist tense. I want you to do this, meaning there's a, there's a force to the words that Paul's using, that you need to be prepared to do this. You should already be doing this, but you need to be doing this. Now, if you know anything about Timothy, even the great historians of the church in the first couple centuries of the church all agreed when they talked of Timothy that he was a timid soul that it wasn't in his nature. Have you ever had a friend that's not shy and they'll say whatever they need to say to anybody? You got that friend? You got that friend? You want that friend to go with you when you're going to a restaurant because that's the friend that goes to the hostess table constantly. Why aren't we seated yet? Because you just got here. Well, why aren't we seated yet? You know, that's like the friend, they're gonna get seated because they're real pushy. That's not Timothy. Timothy's the other guy. Timothy would be the guy that had put in reservations and is sitting on a bench and two hours later finally goes over and is like, hey, did you, uh, is, our, is, um, is my name on there? And the host would be like, oh yeah, I forgot. It'll be 20 minutes. You know, like that's, I don't know if it's that extreme, but Timothy's the guy that Paul has to kind of encourage. Now, I like knowing that about Timothy because if you're like me, I, I can be bold in certain settings, but when it comes to matters of faith, that's a little different, isn't it? How many of you find it easier to talk about politics than Christianity, right? I know some of you are like, oh, yeah, I don't want to talk about politics. Uh, okay, all right. Uh, favorite restaurant. How many, uh, it's easy to talk about your favorite restaurant over your faith in God, right? Every hand, come on. I mean, it's easy to go like, neighborhood jam is awesome. It's fantastic. It's worth the wait, you know? Like, it's easy to talk about that, but we don't talk about that in the same passion that we talk about our faith. And if you've ever felt that, you feel Timothy's pulse. 
And so Paul says to him, uh, preach the message. And uh, preach in, is, is from an old Latin term. It means to proclaim before the public. It doesn't mean to be preachy, by the way, or moralistic. Now, that's key. When, when Paul says preach the message or preach the word, he is not telling Timothy, get on a podium somewhere in downtown Ephesus and say, quit your sinning. It's to proclaim the message that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one can approach God except through him. But getting people to clean up their act before they come to Christ, now that's preachy. And as Christians, we have to be careful of that. And especially because we're at the tail end of an era in the United States that had a lot of integration between faith, or at least it felt like that to most of us, an integration of faith and in a Christian values. And so where even my friends that I grew up with, even if they weren't Christians, generally speaking, they knew things like, you probably shouldn't have sex before you get married. Even though a lot of them were making that choice, they felt guilty about that choice. But they knew that's not a good idea. And that was the 1980s. And today, when you find somebody who's like, yeah, you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage, you're, it's like finding a unicorn, you know? It's not real common. And so we have to be careful that we're not trying to reclaim a moralistic heritage of this great country and get preachy about the days as they were. And in fact, um, the, the message, the message is, is the message of God, that it's God who saves. Now, with that, he does say in preaching the message how to preach, and he gives, uh, he gives four instructions on how to preach. So before you're like, so we never talk about sin? Well, since I'm standing on a, a platform cliff built, and I know that he loves to talk about sin, it's his favorite topic, as a matter of fact, uh, I, you'll wonder at, well, there was one laugh. The rest of you are like, that's a little harsh. Uh, ease up, people. He says, to, he, says, he says, this is how you do it. So you talk about it, be ready in season and out of season is the old expression for it. But it's be ready at all times, really. That's the, that's the expression. It means to, to be on hand, to, to be present. It reminds me of something that Paul says. This is You can look this up on your own. This is Ephesians 5, uh, 15 to 16, where, where Paul talks about uh, making the most use of the time, redeeming the time. And so be ready in season and out of season. Think about the times that may not be entirely convenient, but you need to be present in a spiritual conversation. They come, don't they? The, for, for some of us, I have three kids living at home. Uh, two are adults. One's a, almost, one will be 24 this fall. One is 21. And then I have a boy who just turned 17. So almost. And so I realize that part of being ready in season and out of season is the moments where it's important to have a conversation. It may or may not be convenient. So when the kids were little, it was van rides as we were going to and from places. We'd talk about life, but we'd weave in spiritual conversations when we talked to the kids. Not in preachy ways, because Paul isn't suggesting that, but it's 
to talk about the things of the Lord or how principles that God would have us live out should be lived out. So sometimes it would come as questions. Uh, one of the things that uh, has become quite commonplace in the last, say, 15 years and has been a topic of conversation in our vehicles is uh, something that was not very common when I was young. And that is the number of people who stand on corners with cardboard signs. You know what I'm talking about? Remember when that wasn't a thing? And now it's every corner. Need a blessing, out of work, veteran, with veteran misspelled. Uh, I'm not saying they weren't a veteran, but I'm like, all the veterans I know how to know how to spell that word. Um, but the kids, when they were little, they would, they would ask about the people, but they would also ask, why don't we give anything? And I would explain. Uh, before you think I'm a cold-hearted jerk, I would say, I would say, number one, our first and foremost giving is to our church. We tithe, and then we would have conversation about tithing 10% to the church and what the implications were of that. I like something a pastor, Rick Warren, says. He says, 90% of your income with God's blessing will go much further than 100% without. And I thought, wow, that, I mean, that has, struck, that has stuck with me for decades. But I would talk about instead of just uh, feeling guilt-tripped into giving, I don't feel guilt-tripped into benevolence and caretaking because I've already thought through and I have a plan of giving. It isn't only in the heat of the moment. It's thought through, which also gets me off the hook. Every time now I buy something in a store and they're like, wouldn't you like to round up to give to this or that kitty litter for the, uh, the people who need kitty litter or whatever? I don't mean to make light, but it's like, remember when you'd go to a store and they weren't trying to get you to be benevolent at the store? Again, I'm not against those things, but what I would talk about with my kids is a plan of benevolence and caretaking of souls. Then I would flip it around. I would say, and I, I know this because when I lived in Chicago, I uh, learned this because I was up close and personal with it. It wasn't people where I had a window. It was people on the street. And so I, I learned very early on that most, there are a few scammers out there, and I don't want to give them anything. Uh, actually, early church writers, this is really interesting. Early church writers, like people, basically the summation is people who scam to get benevolence money and they don't need it are damnable. That was early church father. I didn't write that. Uh, <laughs> they were harsh. They weren't, you know, sometimes we paint a picture like the early, you know, from the very beginning, we've all been very sweet. Not, it wasn't sentimental. It was, it was strong. It was, it was true. So anyhow, uh, so I, would, I, I learned something, though, is that many of the people, if they're not scamming, there's mental health issues and substance abuse issues. And by giving cash away to people, that's a very dangerous commodity in the hands of the wrong people. The scammers, well, they don't deserve anything. But the people who need something, they might need a bottle of Gatorade or a sandwich. And so I have friends that have cliff bars and bottles of water and they'll pull up and they'll give a cliff bar, a bottle of water, whatever. That sounds, that's great. It's a commodity that can be consumed that can help a person. And so, but we would have these conversations in the van to talk about, but, but what we would be very clear about is every person standing on the corner is made in the image of God. God loves them and Christ died for them. But because of either mental health or substance abuse, it might be difficult for that person to have the relationship with God we have with God. So we still need to be compassionate and caring. And if your heart is so moved, get involved in homeless ministries or soup kitchens, or uh, we have a great city rescue mission in this town. So, so we would talk about, this is as you're like living out your life, 
You're being ready in season and out of season. Get it? It's in the normal stuff of life that you're prepared to have these conversations. And so he says, be ready at all times. But then he says to reprove, or the word there might be convict. And this is uh, William Hendrickson, an old uh, New Testament scholar from the last century. He wrote this. He said, sin must be brought home to the sinner's consciousness in order that he may repent. And so um, Timothy's a pastor of a church. And in his church, there would be conversations. Some of those would be one-on-one conversations. Some of those would be conversations where there would be the illumination of biblical teaching that would explain uh, intentionality of what God was saying. Imagine you're teaching through um, teachings of Jesus Christ from the Sermon on the Mount. I remember the first time I read through that as an 18, 19-year-old thinking, oh, I'm not doing hardly any of this. If you feel like you're doing better than I am, read through the Sermon on the Mount and you'll probably be with me and be like, oh man, I'm doing really good at not cussing maybe, or, or maybe I'm not good at not cussing, but I'm, 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 doing, I'm doing some really good, nice things and I'm a good citizen and I vote and stuff. And, and then you read the Sermon on the Mount and you're like, oh man, there's so many things I've left off the table. And, and, and so uh, it, it could be Timothy, make sure that you're teaching the full range, not your hobby horse issue. And so uh, this is, this is um, words from a pastor to a pastor. And so as, as, as Paul's talking about this, I, you cannot, I don't know about you, I don't find that comfortable to talk about. I had a very dear, dear friend, uh, closest friend, longest surviving friend up until about a decade ago. He was married, had wonderful family, met, meets a gal at work, tells his wife, I've met somebody at work. She's the love of my life, and I need to be with her. And then his wife calls me up. So I, I immediately make an appointment with the guy, and I go chat with him. And he's like, Bill, God wants me to be happy. I, I mean, I, he said it, and I was like, oh, never say that to a pastor, because we're like, all right, show me. You know, it's not in there, but people think it's in there. And we had a a very heartfelt and deep conversation about the sinful choices that he was making. And I was trying to prick his consciousness. And it didn't, I wish I I could tell you, and then he, he repented and turned away from that. He didn't. He married that woman, left his wife, abandoned his wife. They had to garnish his wages to get child support. I mean, he turned into something very ugly. And in one of the conversations I had with him, he said to me, uh, all I have to do, this isn't a big deal, all I have to do is apologize, say I'm sorry, and God has to forgive me. He said that. And in a moment that I can only give credit to the Holy Spirit for, I had just the right words back because they were prophetic. I said, here's the problem. When you get to this point, you won't want to. And guess what he's never done in 10 years? He's never apologized to anybody. And he walked away from church. And I'm saddened by that. So this is not easy work. Sometimes that's the outcome of it. That's, uh, sometimes that's, not, that's why we don't want to talk about it. Because sometimes that's what comes with it. And yet, Paul says to Timothy, you, you, need, to, you need to reprove. 
And then he says, uh, you need to rebuke. As if reprove wasn't tough enough, you need to rebuke. And this is, um, uh, again, Hendrickson says, um, sin must not be toned down. You don't soften it. So like when we were raising little kids and uh, when they were munchkins in the house and they would say something that wasn't so, we would correct what they said, but we would also say, that's a lie. And, and as they got older, we'd say, that's a lie. And the Bible says, God says that lying is a sin. Now, I, I know that sounds like, now we wouldn't do that like when they were like two and a half, all right? Because it's all very, you know, not. But as they got older, we were having that conversation. We were talking about the biblical stuff. It's not abusive. It's honest. Um, and now think about the world we live in today where truth is very fluid, right? It's a difficult world to live in because it's, uh, as one uh, comedian called it, truthiness, I think was his term for it. And there's a lot of that out there. There's a lot of truthiness and uh, across the political uh, spectrum, by the way. So it's, there's a lot of not telling the truth. And, and so, uh, so rebuke, we can't tone down sin. But then, then Paul says, and this is where up till now, this feels very harsh, right? I know you're like, it's Mother's Day. I'm so glad I came. Uh, it's a day to honor mom. Let's talk more about lying. Um, as, as Paul says, uh, the next word he uses is admonish. But it, you might, if in the NIV, it, it talks about encouragement. And that's the right word. It's, uh, it has this parental tone to it. It literally means to, to call aside. So that means that much of the correcting in life might occur privately, far, far, far more often than publicly. Have you ever been um, chastened or corrected in public? Yeah, I heard, I just, Aaron just went, ah, yes, right? It doesn't feel good. Now, it doesn't feel good to be pulled aside, but it's, it's good in the long run. And so Paul says to, as, as, we're, as we're going about this, as we're in ready, we're ready at all times that we, we call sin, sin, that we don't tone it down. We do so with a loving tone that we care deeply. The friend that I mentioned earlier, um, if he, you know when I'm ready to accept his heartfelt apology? any moment, at any time. And guess what? I'd welcome him right back into friendship. In fact, I'm still here. He just moved away from me. And so I'm not trying to lift myself up as noble. What I'm saying is, is, is um, the people in our lives, the people we care about who've, who have uh, turned away from God, we don't shun. I mean, they, they actually oftentimes shun us. They move away. But but there's this, there's this parental feel to the whole situation. So uh, I, I have uh, I mentioned three kids. I've never put them out on the front step. You know, no matter how lippy during those teenage years, uh, we have one kid in particular, I won't name names, but we have one kid in particular that's really kind of more sassy than the others. But even that one child, I have never just grabbed by the arm, put on the porch, shut the door and locked it and said, good luck. <laughs> Why? I'm, a, I'm dad. 
I'm not going to do that. I'm not saying I'll never do that. <laughs> but I'm not planning to do that, all right? There is a place and there is a time, all right, to put them on the porch, but it's not today. And this is because what Paul says, we do this, we do this, get this, we do this, um, we do this with great patience and careful instruction. And so there's this picture of God that's painted in the Old and in the New Testament. And this is a patient, long-suffering God. Sometimes people get this impression that God changed. Jesus came and God became much more chill. I mean, Old Testament God, grumpy, wipes out villages, seems to fly off at the handle. I would recommend read the Old Testament. There is no flying off at the handle. His patience is beyond ours. We would wipe a lot more people. If any of us in this room had divine authority, there'd be a lot more than a handful of Palestinian villages that got wiped off the map. Many of us would wipe companies off the map, and maybe an entire state off the map, nations off the map. I mean, seriously, sometimes people are like, I can't believe God would do that. I would do it different. No, you wouldn't. We would be farm. In fact, in fact, history has shown it. The nations that turned away. I, this is an interesting thing. In the 20th century, as the God is dead movement became more and more, it, all we have to do is look at Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union and a handful of other countries that I won't name because they're probably listening in via electronic media <laughs> and they'll hack my email. But North Korea. But, um, and, and, they're, and, they're, and they're, they, were, they were or are godless and they are far more brutal than any crusade or religious movement ever had thought to be. Now, it doesn't exonerate the history of the church, but I will say that when, when people take a high and mighty tone towards God in the Old Testament, I'm like, oh, please, show a little humility. Give me a break. You are no better. If you actually look through, you see this long-suffering God. He puts up with so much that none of us in this room would put up with. And so this is true. So what Paul's saying to Timothy is, is really take on a characteristic of God. This is to be Christ-like, but this is to be God-like in general. Long-suffering, patient, willing, and not just sit there, but as you do so, he says to be long-suffering with careful instruction. And so it's this articulation. It's this explanation of why not that, why this is a better way. And it's, it's diplomatic and it's considerate and it's, it's thoughtful. And so Paul says, this is how you are to do your work. And then he goes on. This is where, it, I mean, he goes on. He says, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. And what cracks me up is he wrote this. I, I think every era of the church is like, he's talking about right now. I mean, he was talking about right then. And yet when I read like there is a time coming when people won't put up with, with, uh, with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say whatever their itching ears want to hear. Then they'll repost it on Twitter and Facebook. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, doesn't it? It's like. He wrote that nearly 2,000 years ago, and even today I'm like, oh, so timely. Oh, so timely. I don't know. I, I don't know if, 
if, if this happens to you, but I, I'm on, you know, at any given moment, I'm on social media and I will see someone, I, I will cringe. People will post the most ludicrous kind of spiritual sounding things. And, and I'll be like, oh, it's close, but not quite. For instance, here's one of my favorite. I bring this one up in many different settings to try to correct people from ever using this one. So um, there's, uh, you know, St. Francis of Assisi. By the way, he'd be appalled that San Francisco is named after him. But um, St. Francis of, <laughs> really, I mean, congratulations for all the good you did. We named a city after you. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, but St. Francis of Assisi, uh, this is a, a, they'll show a little meme of him and, and then the meme will be preach the gospel always. If necessary, use words. Have you heard that one? Number one, St. Francis never said it. All the people are St. Francis scholars. All you have to do is Google this. It's right out there. All the scholars of St. Francis are like, stop it. He never said that. Uh, and he wrote, but he didn't write that. But also the irony is they use words to say, don't use words, right? There's a sentence is like, you know, if, if preach gospel always, if necessary, use words. Well, uh, apparently it was necessary to use words to write that sentence. So evidently from time to time, it's necessary. Like, I like Yosemite. It's beautiful. But as I stand there, on um, Glacier Point, and I look out on Yosemite Valley. It's just one of the wonders of the world. It's beautiful. God crafted it. And I think to myself, there's a creator. But Yosemite Valley doesn't tell me the creator came, took human flesh, died on a cross, rose from the grave so that my sin could be taken care of. That is not in Yosemite Valley. So maybe I should carve it there on the big granite face. You know, no, don't do that. That's, uh, yeah, I might get in trouble for that one. I might. I might get in trouble for that one. But, but this is, um, there, there's a time coming and has now come. And it's in every generation. When people, it, to be honest, it's, it's, it's kind of because it's hard, isn't it? I mean, it, it's, it's difficult that one of the sermons that Peter preached, it was in Jerusalem. Uh, this is in Acts, the fourth chapter. You can look it up and find it. Peter said, there's no other name under heaven given among people whereby you must be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. Peter claimed Jesus is exclusively the way to the Father and the way to eternal life. That's not popular today. I mean, it's, it's definitely not popular today. Now, here's what's ironic about it, is that the only place it's not popular is burned over districts of former Christians. That's still very popular in the Islamic world. That going through the various system of Islam is the only way to eternal life. <laughs> meet a devout Muslim, that's what they'll tell you. They're like, nice try, Christians, you're not in. So it's really only Christians or former Christians who are like many different paths way up the mountain. And maybe, maybe some liberal, non-deeply religious Jewish people but the ones that are like an all black with the, the thing, they'll be like, our way, only way in, not your way. Sorry, it won't work. Meanwhile, the Hindus are like, yeah, choose your God. It's fine. It's like a choose your own adventure. No problem. I mean, I'm not making light of world religions. I'm, what I'm saying is, is the people who say these things don't know a thing about world religions. So I don't know how they separate themselves from a world religion to say such a thing. But this has become kind of popular vernacular in our world today. And so what we have to wrestle with is sticking with what the scriptures teach. And, and the good news is we're reminded of what Paul said to Timothy. 
hey, this is the world you're living in. Ephesus was a, 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 a city that was made very popular by a temple dedicated to Artemis, among other deities. And so people would come in, and this would be like their moment. This would be their pilgrimage to the holy shrine, and they would go. And, and, and so there was all kind of mixed up kind of faith in that community. And many of those people ended up in Timothy's church. And so he had to teach them what was right. But they had grown up. If you had dedicated yourself to Artemis, you would have grown up with a conventional side of morality that said multiple sexual partners is not a big deal. Not a big deal at all. That, would, that was the conventional wisdom of a follower of Artemis. So then they become a Christian. And they're just living their life normally. And now Pastor Timothy has to say, I know you grew up that way, but that's not how you live. And they say something like, well, I don't feel bad. No, it doesn't matter if you feel bad. You're not supposed to do that. How come? Well, because the Lord himself said not to do that. And here's where he said not to do that. And this is a reiteration of something from the beginning of his book. Here it is. And so Timothy had to do the hard work of teaching people who their conventional wisdom taught them something different. It's not unlike today. But he was to do so as a father. Gently, not be like, I can't believe that's disgusting, you pervert. Now, that's not. Now, now, if you've ever thought that, that's what a journal's for. Okay? You write that in a journal. I can't believe. What a pervert. Don't call someone that word. That's preachy, moralistic, inappropriate. We all have, I, I just say, we all have visceral gut responses to things. It's just as we get older and more mature, we're supposed to keep them in. So definitely don't say it out loud and don't put it on any social media. Just patiently, lovingly, like a parent who cares greatly about a child. You, you coach them in the right way to live their life. And so what Paul says, that they're going to turn their, their ears away from the truth and aside to myth. But you keep your head in all situations. Enduring hardship, do the work on evangelists, discharge all the duties for ministry. And, and uh, what was really lovely in this is that um, he, he's, he's told to, to carry out, be, be sober-minded in the way that you carry out. In other words, this, you, you've seen these signs, keep calm and carry on. It's a... It's interesting. They, they came out in 1939. It was supposed to be war propaganda for the British Empire. And they never, they never quite made it into the subway stations. There were a few that did, and now the original is very collectible. But now we have keep calm and mow your lawn or whatever. We have all kinds of keep calm and this, right? But it was keep calm and carry on. And, and you think about it in the context of 1939 when Nazi bombers were pulverizing uh, London, it was like, hey, keep doing your work. We need you to go to the factory, even though the factory might blow up and you might die in it. We still need you to make the parts. So you got to go do your job. And so keep calm and carry on. And so that's what Paul's saying to Timothy. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, people, they, they crave fancier preachers or this, that, that thing. Keep calm, be sober-minded, do your job. And then he says, endure, um, endure the suffering. So this is good news. Anticipate hardships. If it's ever been difficult, if you feel the, the, the level of difficulty rising, this is good news. 
It might mean you're drawing closer to God and you're starting to sense that the things that didn't bother you before are now kind of bothering you because before in a less Christ-like situation, you were fine with it. But as you grow in your love for Christ, you realize, well, this is not how I should live. This isn't what I should watch. This isn't what I should say or where I should do this particular thing. And, and, and so um, anticipate hardships. And then he says, evangelize, uh, do the work of an evangelist. Spread the good news. Evangelism is sharing the good news. And, and here's the great part. And this is the weird part of the great part. And this is actually the great part in our culture today. This is a weird part to the great part. As our American culture becomes less Christian-based, the, the, the opportunity to set a distinct life is, is all the more amplified. Not a holier-than-thou life, not a higher-than-that-person's life, but a distinct life to be set apart. That's the ultimate idea of holiness, is to be set apart. And so to be set apart, it gives you an opportunity to explain yourself. And it does happen. I mean, people are curious about things. People are curious about well-behaved kids. They are curious about marriages that go the distance. They are curious about um, positive attitudes, even in the midst of great difficulty. It makes the world curious. And there's an opportunity because of the distinctive that you have a confidence in your eternal destiny, that you have a, a sure-footedness because you're not wondering, how should I live in the world today because that foundation has been set. You could, drop, you could put us in a time machine and drop us a thousand years ago, and other than all the tech being really different, as in non-existent, uh, it would, we would know how to live our lives. It, it's not like if you dropped us into a different period of time that suddenly we'd go, am I supposed to have multiple marriages or am I supposed to uh, steal from my neighbor? No, we know how to live our lives. And so because we know how to live, we're, we're going to have an opportunity to evangelize, to, to share the hope that you have in you. And that's really what another passage, Peter says something similar. He says, always be prepared to, to give an answer for the hope that's within you. Is if people go, how is it, what is it that makes you tick to be able to answer that? And then um, he says to fulfill your ministry, do your job. Just finish the work that's set before you. Reminds me of Colossians 3 where Paul says, do everything you do uh, as, as unto the Lord. And he's actually talking to slaves who are bound to an earthly master in the context in which Paul wrote those words in Colossians. And he says, but whatever you do, don't do it because you're afraid of the whip. Don't do it so that you're sucking up to the master. Do it because you want to bring honor to the Lord. I was uh, reminded of this uh, concept this morning. I was doing some Old Testament reading in 1 Samuel, and a prophet comes to the to the spiritual leader of the nation at the time. His name was Eli, and he had no business being the spiritual leader. He was a terrible guy, terrible dad. His sons were terrible. And so this a prophet comes to Eli, and he says, basically, you've been bad, and bad things are coming to your house. God says, I will honor those who honor me, and those who dishonor me, I'll cast out. And so there's this great reminder. We have an opportunity. Look at the positive side of it. Honor God in all things. Honor him, and he'll honor you. So it's a beautiful way to wrap up this little last world and testament to Timothy. Is just do your job, Timothy. Do it for the honor, for the glory of God.
And so I hope, uh, I hope something in here was um, instructive or helpful, inspiring, or uh, somehow grabbed hold of you. I think there, the, even though there's a pastor talking to a pastor, you don't have to be a pastor to grab hold of something there and either be comforted, encouraged, or maybe exhorted in the process. Amen? Yeah. Let me pray for you, and then you'll be dismissed. Thanks for this uh, fine group of people. Heavenly Father, thanks for the opportunity that you've given us to gather Lord, we're thankful for the Sanders, for Becky's 25 years on the staff of this lovely church. What a testament of her grace and of her uh, hard work and the work you do through her. Thank you for that. And thank you for Cliff and for all that he does. Lord, is, I know I speak for this class that loves him dearly. Thank you for the gift that you've given him and the way he blesses all of our lives. And so, Lord, give them traveling mercies as they return back to the great state of Oklahoma today. Let it go very well for them. So, Lord, as we go from this place, help us take these words of Paul to Timothy with us. We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. Good to be with you all. Have a great day.